Good evening. I've been doing this for a long time, and when I was younger, I assumed that eventually I would really start feeling it and being connected emotionally and spiritually. And I just kept on doing everything. But I came to a point in life where I'm just, I'm not feeling it. I'm doing it, but I'm not feeling it. And this is a struggle that every human being has at some point in life, and perhaps many points in life. Are we supposed to be feeling more? Are we supposed to be more connected and more in tune? Or is this the struggle of existence where we somehow discern what the truth is and pursue it, even though we're never really fully ignited, really fully inspired, but I do it because I think it's the right thing. What is the goal? Is the goal to have that emotional connection to my, my ruchnias, to my Yiddishkeit, to feel a closeness with Hashem in a very visceral way? Or is that just something that we read about with gedolim and tzaddikim? Maybe that's not realistic for us to attain. If that would be the case, that would be very depressing. That's not the case. I want to start off by sharing a story. The story I saw in a beautiful Sefer, Sefer's Lefan of Navod, where he has different vadim, different discussions on tefillah, how to make davening more meaningful and uplifting. And he shares a personal story that he and himself, he together with a friend, it was uh, before Sukkot, they went together to Rav Gamliel Rabinowitz, Shlita, and Rav Shraga Samuels, right? two gedolim in Eretz Yisrael. And they asked the following question. His friend was doing the talking. He said, I spent a lot of money before Sukkot buying Lulav and Esrog. I don't have that much to begin with, but I was most nefesh to make sure I got a nice set. And I learned all of the beautiful Kabbalistic ideas behind the mitzvah. And I was preparing for hours. And then Yantif began. And I started the, the mitzvah. Anilo Margish Klum. But even with all that money and all that preparation, I didn't feel anything. His friend explained to these particular gedolim. He said, I'm already about 40. I've been doing this for a long time. But I have not yet really had a taste of flavor in the mitzvos. If not now, when? That was the question posed to Rav Gamliel Rabinowitz and Rav Samuels. I want to get to their answer in a moment. But the starting point is actually a very interesting pasuk we have in the creation of the Mishkan. The Torah tells us, "Vasises a Krushim le Mishkan." You should make the Krushim; they were the beams, right? Really, the structure of the Mishkan. Atze shitim omdim. Atze shitim, made out of wood, omdim, standing straight. The Gemara in Sukkah learns from this word omdim that it's not only telling us a halacha regarding the Mishkan, but it's actually giving us instructions for all mitzvahs that we do. 
This is quoting from Hashem Bar Yochai. Kol hamitzvos kulon ein adam yotze behen elederech gedilosan. Just like in the Krashim, the wood had to be standing up in the same way that it grows from the ground, that's true for all mitzvos. It has to be derech gedilosan in the way that it grows. Now, technically speaking, that's where we learn lulav and esrog, for example. The lulav, the esrog, the hadasim, the rovos, they all have to be facing up in the way they grow from the ground. If you're holding the esrog upside down, you're not being mekayim the mitzvah. That's why we first hold it upside down, we're saying the bracha, and then after saying the bracha, you turn it around. What's a little bit strange, though, about the Gemara is that it says, kol mitzvos kulon, with all mitzvos, you're not yotze unless you do it in the way that it grows. Now, how many mitzvos do we have in the Torah? We have a lot. How many of them are really connected in a halachic sense to derech gidilosan? You count a few of them, yet the, the expression of the Gemara is, kol mitzvos kulon, you're not really doing it unless you're doing it in the way that it grows. So explains her Moshe Feinstein a beautiful idea. The Moshe says, beyond the, the technicality of the halacha, that you have to hold the esrog and the lulav in a particular way, the Gemara is teaching us from this idea of omdim, that every mitzvah we do, we should try to do it in a way where it's a derech gedilosam, where we're growing through and from the mitzvah. It's not just a behavior or a habit or an obligation and responsibility, but I'm doing it in a way where I'm actually growing from it. That means that potentially we could do everything and anything but there's different ways of doing it. Am I doing it in a way where I'm not really connecting with it, there's no emotional feeling, it's not transformative at all? Or am I doing it in a way where it's, it's the derech gedilosan? There, there's a growth that's sprouting forth from this mitzvah. And it sounds like from the Gemara, that choice is mine. It's not based on circumstance, it's not based on my particular mood, but I could choose to do a mitzvah in a way where I'm growing from it, and I could choose not to. I'll give you an example. The Gra has a famous letter that he writes to his wife and his mother as he attempted to make Aliyah. And it's an incredible letter where he speaks about all of the instructions and his tefillos for his home and the interaction, the relationship between his mother and his wife, leaving them with a bracha, but he also gives them advice. He says, don't forget to learn Musr. I have beautiful svarim on my shelf, Mishle, Kohelis, and other works of Musr. Please learn them. But then he has a caveat. But God forbid, the goal of learning Musr is not just to read a page of this particular uh, sefer and feel accomplished because I read it. Just reading something doesn't really change you, it doesn't move you. There are many people that learn Musr, but they're not transformed through it because they're just reading it. So the Gra is telling his wife and his mother, 
there's something called limud hamusr. And this can be an anchor in your life, and this could enhance your relationship within the family and your avodas Hashem. But there's a way to do it where it's actually going to work, and there's a way to do it where you're just doing it, but it's not actually uplifting you, it's not transforming anything about you. The altar of Kelm was known for his, his focus on the koach machshava, the power of the mind, and being able to have the, the clarity and the consistency to be focused on something in a way, whether it was learning, tefillah, chesed, but utilizing the force of the mind that everything we're doing should be meaningful and transformative. That doesn't mean every single thing we do. Obviously, we're human. But the more we're able to tap into the koach ha-machshava and, and through the, the, the focus and the, the, the mindfulness of what I'm doing and why I'm doing it, I could take something that otherwise might be somewhat superficial and make it very, very powerful. He has in a piece where he speaks about this idea, the following example. He says, you have two people who both open up a store. Right? You picture you're spending a lot of money paying rent every month. Both, uh, both guys have a massive warehouse. They're going to have a clothing store. And they spend hundreds of thousands of dollars getting the merchandise together. Everything's ready to go. They look pretty similar. They're on different sides of the town. One guy... Once everything is ready and set up, so he walks into the store, he takes inventory, he knows exactly what he has and how much, and looks around, everything is nice and neat, and then walks out and closes the door and locks the door. The other fellow does the exact same thing. However, he actually advertises and people come, and people are buying, and he's selling, and he's now short on this particular product, so he's got to get more, and he's actually making money. And the first guy is more like a museum. I did everything I was supposed to do, but there's actually no give and take. There's no buy and sell. Says the altar of Kelm, the difference between the first guy and the second guy is life and death. You have something that looks like a business that might have potential, but you're not doing anything with the schorah. You're not using all of this, this value. It's just sitting there. And the second guy is actually being productive. He's making money. And people are coming in and out. And there's transactions. And he's, he's growing his reputation. That's a business that's alive and thriving. It's flourishing. The application that the altar of Kelm makes... This is the same thing is true when it comes to our avodas Hashem. We could be doing what seems to be pretty much the same schedule, the same routine, saying the same brachos, davening the same tfilos, doing the same chesed for each other. But you could have one person where it's just so detached from who I am. It becomes just something I'm doing, something I'm a part of. It's a cultural association, but it's not within me. It's not a chius. It's not an expression of who I am. It's not my identity. And then you could have someone doing those exact same things, but there's actually, there's a fire. 
there's a reality to it. He uses the, the Yiddish expression, he says, you could be just translating words, taiching, taiching. Right, this is what it is in Hebrew, this is what it is in English. If my whole davening, for example, is just taiching, that itself could be very detached from, from any neshama. Or you could have steiging. Steiging means that I'm actually growing. There's something happening. There's this organic process where, where I'm, I'm breaking out of my, my previous limitations. That's growth. We could be doing the exact same thing, but if we do it in a different way, that could make all the difference in the world. Now, the $64,000 question is, so like, how do we do that? How do we make that decision? We all want to be there. I would love to be that person. When I read biographies about these types of people, I have a sense of jealousy. I would like to experience that also. I remember many times my mother used to tell me, she would say, I'm very jealous of you because of your rich inner world that, that you experience on a daily basis. And I would say back, Mom, it's really not that rich. <laughs> There's not a lot going on here. I try, I try. But we want to be that person. So the, the story of Helen Keller, I always felt, was an incredible seer, an analogy to how this kind of transformation could potentially take place. Right, David Melch writes in Tehillim, Pekudei Hashem Yesharim Esam Chelev, the mitzvahs of Hashem, they're Yesharim, they're truth, and that's why they bring joy to the heart. Because when we do that which we know is true, there's a sense of inner joy. Mitzvahs Hashem Bora Meira Seinayim. The mitzvahs of Hashem are clear. Meira Seinayim, they enlighten the eyes. And the Malbim explains, the mitzvah Hashem Bara is because every single mitzvah, there is so much within that action, thought, word, tefillah. Yesh lehem tamim nechonim. There are so many beautiful, deep ideas within every mitzvah. And therefore, when I'm doing anything within the world of mitzvahs, it has the ability to be me'ira senayim, to enlighten my eyes. Right? To almost give me that ability to see when previously everything was dark. There's a way, this is what David HaMelech is saying, there's a way to be engaged in the mitzvos where that activity itself is allowing me to see more and to see deeper and to have more of this real emotional attachment to what I'm doing. June 27, 1880, that's when Helen Keller was born. And she was born as a totally normal, healthy little girl. And when she was about a year and a half years old, she had some kind of disease. It could be scarlet fever, meningitis. But that led to you know, the state of being totally deaf and blind. And she was basically trapped in that reality for the first seven years of her life. She was a tormented soul in the way that she herself describes it in her autobiography. She says, for those first seven years, 
It felt like I was at sea in a dense fog. That was my whole life. And she would often express that, that frustration physically. She would attack people. March 5th, 1887, she was almost seven years old. She refers to this day as her soul's birthday. That's when the famous Anne Sullivan came. And you know, as she's known in, later on in American history as the miracle worker, she began trying to, to teach Helen how to communicate. The very first thing she did when she came, she brought a doll with her and she tried spelling on Helen Keller's hand, D-O-L-L. -L. And not being familiar with, with any of this, she obviously had no clue what was happening. As uh, Anne Sullivan tried, all Helen Keller was experiencing, without even being conscious of the experience, is that people are touching me and moving my hands or doing things on my hand in strange ways, and she became more agitated and more frustrated. There was one time where Anne was trying to teach her what a mug was. So she had a mug in one hand, and then she was trying to spell it out in Helen's other hand, and she got so mad she took the mug and she smashed it. The breakthrough, which uh, if you've ever read the play, this is the turning point. The breakthrough was the water, where Anne Sullivan is sitting there with, with Helen, and she starts spelling on her hand, W-A-T-E-R, and at the same time, she starts pouring water. And the way that Helen Keller describes this in her autobiography, she said, I did not know what spelling a word was or even that words existed. I was simply making my fingers go in monkey-like motions up until this point, right? So I'm doing something because I'm being forced to do it. Something's guiding my hands in different directions, but I have no idea what I'm doing. However, as she was pouring water, I stood still, my whole attention fixed upon the motions of her fingers. Suddenly I felt a misty consciousness as if something that was forgotten was now coming back, a thrill of returning thought. And somehow the mystery of language was revealed to me. I knew then that W-A-T-E-R meant the wonderful, cool something that was flowing over my hand. The living word awakened my soul, gave it light, hope, and set it free. I think this is the most powerful analogy to mitzvahs Hashem bora. It could very well be that the majority of our engagement in mitzvos is in the pre-water state of Helen Keller. We're doing things. Why are you doing it? Because I, I, I know it's the right thing, or I was brought up with this. I understand this is what I need to be doing. This is my responsibility. And those are all true. But ultimately, it could be these monkey-like motions imitating that which is supposed to be something real, but never understanding that this actually means something. This is a form of communication, and there's something happening outside of my limited dark world while I'm doing this particular mitzvah. That could be an awakening of the soul. Meira Sainaya means it actually brings light to the eyes. 
So there, there is a way through the mitzvahs themselves to get to a point where I can do anything and everything in the way that I'm going to grow through it. I'm going to be transformed from it. The mitzvahs themselves can help me get there. So I want to share with you what the answer was. Right? You had the author of this Sefer, Navod Lefanov, going together with his friend, asking Rabbi Gamliel Rabinowitz and Rishraga Samuels, why is it that I've tried so hard and here we are in Sukkot and I'm not feeling anything with the, uh, the mitzvah of the, the Dalin Minim? What was their response? So Rabbi Gamliel answered in uh, just a few words. He said, the time to start if you really wanted to work towards feeling something with Lulav and Esrog, is not Erev Sukkis. If throughout the entirety of the year there's a real focus and there's actually a tefillah, there's a yearning of the heart and soul and there's a prayer to becoming closer and, and actually strategizing and, and being creative how can I feel this reality more often? Then we have a much better chance once we get to Yontif and we study some of the ideas and the Ramazim and the Sodos as to why I'm doing what I'm doing. I'm already in that mindset. I've awakened the soul enough that the mitzvahs of Yontif could actually speak to me on some level. Rav Shraga Samuels, who was sitting there, he elaborated on this idea. He said, to get to a point where we really feel an emotional connection with mitzvos, that requires an ongoing focus and an ongoing desire to do so. V'simachtem lifnei Hashem, he quotes the Pasuk, you should rejoice before Hashem. The way that Samuel explains that Pasuk is that when a person comes to a recognition that my entire life is lifnei Hashem, similar to the ideas we spoke about a few weeks ago, right? That karov Hashem, I'm close with Hashem, even when I'm davening and asking for, for refuah and Yeshua and Nechama, but there's still a sense Hashem is with me. Then, v'semachdem, then there's a sense of joy, because that reality of Hashem being with me and guiding me, by definition, brings a sense of simcha. However, to get to that recognition of Lifnei Hashem, that I'm standing before Hashem and with Hashem, that you can't do in Erev Yantiv. That takes every day of our life trying to get there. The word mitzvah comes from the word tzavtza. Tzavtza is a language we have throughout Chazal, which means to, to accompany, to be malava, to be together with. So many of the Balei Machshava explain that the, the goal of every mitzvah is to have this idea, Bechina of Tzavsa, that, that we're together with Hashem. There's a hiskashrus, there's a connection, there's a relationship. But it's not automatic. If I'm just allowing you to make those words on my, on my hand, but I don't know what you're doing or why you're doing it, and I don't appreciate this is actually a form of communication with something beyond myself, then it's just motions. It's interesting, the word for Avera, where does Avera come from? We use that to mean sin. 
Avera, though, comes from the idea of Aver, Lenar, Aver, Lenar, is you're going away from, you're past, you're on the other side of. So a mitzvah is a tzavsa, is this relationship, this, this bond, and Avera is I'm, I'm distancing, I'm not, I'm not taking that opportunity. It's interesting when you teach kids how to read, so when they're first learning olive base, and they could sing the olive base before they could actually point to the letters, and then they could actually point to the letters, and it's cute, and you ask, oh, what is that? That's a gimel, that's a dalit, and that's a hey. Do you have any clue what a gimel is? You have no clue. And then when they get a little bit older, and they're learning actually how to read, and they're putting those letters together, that gimel takes on a whole different scope. Now I understand that this is part of, of a word. And when you put it together with other letters, then it actually creates a word. And when you teach me what that word actually means, right, in the famous Rabbi Yachnes Chumish play, where you see in front of your eyes unfolding the magic of the chinuch, putting osios together, forming a word, and then knowing what that word means, then that gimel or that dalit and hey, whoa, this is much bigger than just a random shape that I know that's called gimel. There's a context. And then when a person's actually learning, and Torah becomes a pursuit, so then every letter of the olive base takes on a kedusha noira, this awesomeness to it, it's a different gimel, it's a different dalid, and a different hay. We're not going to have time this evening to get into particular strategies of how to incorporate more of this view into our Vodas Hashem, right, to get to the, the post-water experience of Helen Keller. But I think the starting point is when we ask the question, is it something that I could be feeling, or is it only for the great people and tzaddikim? The answer is we definitely can tap into it. And a Kaddish Baruch Hu wants us to tap into that emotional pleasure of the mitzvos. And there are practical and, and very user-friendly strategies we'll explore together in Mirza Hashem. However, one very important caveat as we end is that the first step is the realization that there's a lot more truth and, and richness that I'm not tapping into, but I know it exists. Knowing that there's more to every mitzvah, to every chesed, to every tefillah, that's the first step in being able to access more that's out there. However, the Bali Musr point out that if we feel this Necessity. I have to have a hargasha, I have to have an emotional connection, I have to feel something when I'm doing the mitzvah, then the odds are you're not going to feel anything. Right? We should try, and the, and the idea of knowing there's more out there, and actually davening, turning to Hashem, not just for all of the other many, many requests that we have for ourselves and for Kalal Yisrael, but to ask Hashem, Help me feel more of the truth and more of the oneg that's within the mitzvos. Help me have that experience of mitzvos Hashem Bora, Meira Sainayim. I want to be that person. 
having that tefillah expressing our ratzon to be closer to Hashem through the mitzvos, the tzavtso accompanying HaKadosh Baruch Hu through our, our Torah experience, that tefillah itself is very powerful. And that's actually, we daven every yontif. I'll end with this. Every yontif, we start off by saying that atabachartanu mikolaami mahafta osanu retzisabanu romamtanu mikolashonus vikidashtanu b'mitzvosecha you've sanctified us through your mitzvos. And then in that exact same tefillah, a few lines later, we turn to Hashem and we, we ask, Kadshenu b'mitzvosecha, please sanctify us through your mitzvos. You just said, Kadshenu v'kidishtanu b'mitzvosecha, that you have done this. You've uplifted us through your mitzvos. Why are we then turning to you and saying, Kadshenu, please sanctify us? Is it something that's taken place? Is it a reality, or is it something we have to daven for? But the answer is, it's a reality that we have this kedusha at our disposal. We have the mitzvos within us and around us. So you've given us that sanctity of the opportunity, but we daven kadshenu secha, allow us to get to a point where we're really infusing that kedusha through the mitzvos, where it's mitzvos Hashem bora meira seinayim. So we leave off tonight. We know there's a lot more. There's an oneg that we want to tap into, that we can tap into. And we daven that Hashem should allow us to work closer to that, that pleasure of connection with Him through the mitzvahs. Have a wonderful evening.